Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr James Martin, founder of the James Martin 21st Century School at the University of Oxford, explains why decision makers need to look at the global big picture to avoid world catastrophe. Ladies and gentlemen, um, can I welcome you to this evening's lecture? Um, as many of you know, I'm Glynis Breakwell, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to the Gerald Walters <coughs> Memorial Lecture. The Gerald Walters Lecture is the most prestigious and long-lived of the public lectures at the University of Bath. It was the first lecture series established after the granting of the University Royal Charter. Dr Gerald Walters, in whose honour the series is named, was our first reader in humanities and is credited with bringing to the university the recognition of the importance of studying the nature of society in what was then a largely scientific and technological institution. Indeed, Gerald's widow, Dorothy Walters Godfrey, who I am delighted to say is with us here this evening, assures me that it was Gerald who persuaded the university to change its name from Bath University of Technology to the University of Bath. I think it was a good move, frankly. Since the first lecture in 1971, which was given by Lord Clark, we have had a remarkable series of lecturers from every walk of intellectual endeavour, including Ralph Darendorf, Walter Bodmer, Crispin Tekel, Chris Patton, and more recently, Onora O'Neill. And Dr. James Martin, our speaker tonight, is certainly the, wor the worthy inheritor of this tradition. Dr. James Martin is best known as the guru of the information age, and is one of the world's foremost authorities on the social and commercial ramifications of computers. In addition to an MA and doctorate from the University of Oxford, he has honorary de degrees, honorary doctorates from all six continents, a rare achievement. In 2005, he provided both the vision and the financial support necessary to establish the James Martin 21st Century School at the University of Oxford which builds on the Institute for Science, Innovation and Society, which Dr. Martin endowed at Oxford in 2004. This April, he gave the 13th annual Commonwealth Lecture at the Royal Institution on Science and Technology Impacts on Society in the 21st Century. With his vast experience, Dr. Martin is perhaps ideally placed to address the topic of his lecture this evening, our future, the big picture. I have a feeling that Gerald Walters would have relished the discussion of this challenging set of issues. Please welcome Dr. James Martin. This is an extraordinary time in history, an extraordinary time in the lives, at least of the younger people in the room. We could mess up the planet, we could mess up civilization incredibly, 
if we get things wrong, but on the other hand, if we do the right things, we could build a civilization that's much greater than any civilization on Earth so far. And these events, the decisions about you know which which way we're going, are not all that far in the future. If we do the wrong things in the next 20 years, it's going to be a hell of a mess. And if we do the right things, then we can uh, create a world which will be uh, a wonderful world for our children to live in. Now, uh, the school at Oxford is very concerned with that. We now have um, 15 institutes and 19 large uh, projects. So it's amazing how it's taken off. For example, we have George Soros, who was with the group this, this morning, and he's concerned that we don't have adequate financial models which would prevent us uh, from getting crashes like the one we've just had. And so there are a group of uh, very top uh, financial experts and computer modeling experts who are trying to put together uh, a way to understand the uh, future economy in a much better way than we, we do at the present time. And uh, anyway, a very large number of different uh, activities, and it's pretty awesome going around them with such an amazing collection of uh, brilliant uh, people that are running all of these things. And so it gives me the opportunity to have a very diverse view of all the different aspects of the future that will uh, concern us. And uh, one thing I'm concerned about is that uh, we have to be able to connect the dots. There are lots of different subjects. And Many people just don't put them together. Um, so what I'd like to do here is to talk about the near future and talk about uh, how we need to connect the dots and how we are likely to get in deep trouble if we don't uh, connect them properly. And so this is the century that we're in. The Earth has a very uh, thin, if you will, surface. If you imagine a, a physical model of the Earth which is uh, a thousand feet across, then the surface, which represents our ecology and the oceans and the atmosphere and everything else, would be as, as thin as an eggshell. And so this is this is where we live, and we could mess it up, and it's more delicate than we generally appreciate. And so this is a large part of uh, what we're concerned about. And uh, but every year, humankind now loses 24 billion tons of topsoil. Staggering amount of topsoil. Creates 15 uh, million acres of new desert. I'll be making a film on this going all the way around the world. And the desert, the new desert, doesn't look like the Sahara Desert, but you can't grow food in it. It's got, just got scrub, scrub vegetation. The thing which I found extraordinary going around the world is the new desert in um, Russia, or the new desert in Southeast Asia, the new desert in South America. New Desert in Africa looks re remarkably similar. So we're destroying the soil, destroying the capability to grow food in a similar way all the way around, around the planet. We're losing 150 billion tons of aquifer water. The Green Revolution, as I'm sure you all know, was incredibly successful. And one of the reasons why it was successful is that it used an awful lot of water to grow new crops. Much of that water came from underground reservoirs which had been there for a million years. We call those aquifers, and so you might regard it as fossil water, rather like fossil petroleum. And we are pumping all of that out to uh, water the crops, which were part of the Green Revolution. But one of the amazing things about the Green Revolution is we never actually worked out how much water there was. And in most cases, we never bothered to work out when it would run out. And now many of the aquifers are close to running out and uh, the water that we're, we're drawing from them is enormously greater 
for the water that we're receiving from rain. In fact, if you take the total uh, difference there, it translates into just how, how many water trucks would be needed to represent the amount of water that we are using and not replacing. And uh, the answer is so many trucks that it would be about uh, uh, 33,000 miles, convoy 33,000 miles of, of, of trucks. It's a huge amount of water which we're taking and not replacing. So on some parts of the planet, the water will run out in the next 20 years or so. And so this is one of the concerns. At the same time, that is happening. We, as you, everybody knows, have got uh, global warming. We're destroying vast numbers of fish in the oceans. It's quite amazing. The oceans are so huge. You, know, you sail across the oceans, and, and it's inconceivable that we've destroyed almost all of the fish, or at least almost all of the edible fish in the oceans. But we have. <coughs> and uh, so there's been this sort of careless, uh, wanton uh, destruction uh, driven by finance, but it's not just finance. There are enormous government subsidies for fishing the oceans when almost all the fish are gone. And of course, subsidies are taxes which you pay, so you are paying large taxes to destroy the planet. And uh, these destroy the planet uh, taxes come in many different forms, and destroying the fish in the oceans is, is one of them. So, so many things that we need to understand, to model carefully, and to put right and to get new legislation uh, putting into place. We lose 44 million acres of forest. 44 million, that's the size of Belgium. There was forest the size of Belgium. I was in Belgium and they got very cross with me because they say nobody ever talks about Belgium except you. And what you're talking about is the amount of forest being the same as the size of Belgium. Um, and we pump uh, 20 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so uh, people uh, ask, is, is global warming really caused by human activities? And there are quite a lot of people who say that it isn't. In fact, Sarah Palin, uh, who was the, um, uh, would have been the vice president if John McCain had gone into office. John McCain is pretty old, pretty frail, and the insurance actors were saying if he got into office, there was a 60% chance he would die during the first term of office. And in that case, Sarah Palin would have been the most important person on the planet. And about the first thing she said when she appeared in the public presence is that global warming is not caused by human activity. And you, you've got this sort of uh, lack of understanding among many politicians of what is really happening. I did a, a seminar in uh, the House of Representatives in Washington for two days on my book, The Meaning of the 21st Century. We had lots of senators and congressmen there. The, the people who were much better dressed than the senators were the... Were the uh, lobbyists, and the lobbyists are much better conversation, much more intelligent than the senators and, and lobbyists and the uh, congressmen. And the senators and congressmen, the amazing thing about Washington is not, there's not one single scientist in the, in the government there. They're almost all lawyers. In, in a way, that makes sense because they're lawmakers. Uh, but most of the arguments that go on there are uh, the sort of arguments that lawyers have with no understanding, really, of the planet and the damage that's being done to the planet. So there's a very big question which I'll lead up to towards the end of this, and that is, can we really run a planet where technology is so important if the um, congressmen, senators, members of parliament and so on do not understand science um, and very often have a completely complete misconception of science? Anyway, are we sure it's run by humans? Yes. The biggest temperature rise uh, in... 
uh, in the past has been the ice ages, the end of the ice ages, and the temperature now is rising eight times faster than at the end of the ice ages. And that's certainly going to be caused, could be caused by nature, natural causes. Atmospheric carbon dioxide levels are higher than they've been in the past 800,000 years, and there's no natural explanation for that. The explanation is uh, humans pumping enormous amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Scientific data on all natural factors that influence the climate have failed to show any long-term changes that could account for the, uh, the warming that we're now seeing. And so no, no natural causes, it's uh, human-made causes that are doing it. The computer model showed ongoing, uh, ongoing increases in carbon dioxide will bring much larger and more rapid temperature increases. So global warming is serious. It is caused by us. It's not understood by many of our leaders. There are things that we can do about it, many things that we can do about it, but most of them we're not doing at the present time. We're doing things like building wind generators, and that is, uh, appeals to the public. You know, they're big and they look dramatic and things like that. But the cost of energy from wind generators is minute compared, I mean, the cost of it is enormous. The amount of electricity per pound is, is uh, minute compared with what you would get from conventional power stations. And so wind generators are a sort of decorative thing which makes people feel happy, uh, but isn't in fact contributing very much to the solution of the problem. If we'd wanted to upset the stability of the Earth, you can't imagine a better way to do it than to dig up all the fossil hydrocarbons that we could find uh, from hundreds of millions of years in the past and, and burn, burn them all quickly in the atmosphere. And that's what we're doing. The amount that we burn each year took millions of years to form. <coughs> so we collectively are having an absolutely huge effect on the atmosphere. You can see it in the glaciers. This is a well-known glacier in Switzerland. That's what it looked like in 1994. Here's the same glacier in 2006. And you can take pictures like that of almost all the glaciers in the world where they are shrinking at a very rapid rate. Now, quite often, the water supply with which food is grown comes from those glaciers. And so as they shrink, then we're going to make it much more difficult to get the amount of food needed. China has 1.3 billion people, staggering number of people, and uh, uh, only 10% of the uh, land of China is arable. The, the land down here is arable. This is all, all desert. Uh, they're building many cities. So only 10% of the, the land can be used for growing food. Uh, there's absolutely no way they can possibly feed the population of China with the resources that China has got. Now, the Chinese government people often think of a communist government but that's very misleading you'd never ever hear the word communism spoken in, in China it's certainly a totalitarian government but most totalitarian governments have had some maniac in charge whereas with the Chinese government you've got the most absolutely brilliant people the ministers of China are, are first rate, very intelligent we've had presentations from them they are admirable people but they believe that the greatest civilization in mankind's history is Chinese. The Chinese are special. The Chinese are different. And once again, they believe the greatest civilization in history is going to be Chinese civilization. So they can't feed their people. So what do they do? Well, very carefully, they plan those parts of the planet where there is land which will still be growing food 
when global warming is pretty bad, and they're buying up, they're calling it enormous amounts of land, where the choice of land is that it will be viable for growing food when we get to the crunch point where global warming is making great difficulties in, in farming. This is the Yellow River. The Yellow River is about the same size as the Mississippi. And if you ever said in America, you could imagine time when the Mississippi doesn't reach the sea, let's say you know, crackers, I mean, it couldn't possibly happen. Well, this river, as big as the Mississippi, uh, uh, 10 years ago used to reach the sea every day. Now it only reaches the sea in, in, in about seven days. This year it'll reach the sea in about seven days. And this is all silt. Um, and when the level of water drops, you get a lot of silt in the river, so the silt has been washing into the delta of the Yellow River. And uh, the Chinese are building two new coal power stations a week. And, and coal is the filthiest thing as far as harming the atmosphere is concerned. And these are huge power stations. They're 2 billion watts. Um, quite, quite colossal. Many of the wind generators that we put up are about half, half a million watts. And so to create uh, wind generators, which is equivalent to one Chinese power station, you need about four, four million of them. And uh, the four million wind generators is much more expensive than, <coughs> than a power station. Ours uh, so, so, uh, the size of Belgium, I'll get in trouble again, is, is being destroyed uh, every year. And, and people think that the great forests of the planet are the Amazon. They always talk about the Amazon forest. But in fact, the tropical forests of the Congo and that part of Africa that's about the same latitude as the Amazon are, are now larger and they very often are full of virgin trees, virgin forests, where the trees have never been cut. Now they are cutting them. I, I'm pretty tall. If I stand by this tree, my arms would be about that far across. And uh, there's no uh, a railway line that goes down to the Congo. And there are two trains a week with a very large number of cars. And those trains are full of logs like this, taking the logs to a port on the Atlantic coast to uh, sell the wood. And uh, so we're not only destroying the Amazon, we're destroying other forests. And these forests, like the lungs of the planet, they absorb carbon dioxide and they put out oxygen. And uh, so we are do doing potential severe harm of the future if we destroy them. Now, this is the place where there used to be ice over all of the uh, Arctic areas. And uh, in many places, the ice is now melted. Now, the ice, when sunlighted, it would, it would reflect 90% uh, of the sunlight back into space. But when the ice is gone, then the sunlight all gets absorbed by the water. So when the ice is gone, you get much more damage from sunlight. If you've got a, a cocktail and it's got uh, lumps of ice in it, the cocktail is going to stay cool for quite a long time. But uh, latent heat means that you need much more heat to, to keep ice uh, steady. So when the ice melts, the last piece of ice melts in your cocktail, then your cocktail will get very warm very fast because of latency. Well, exactly the same thing. Gets warm very fast when the ice has melted. This is Bangladesh, and the oceans will rise not by all that much. But in a country like Bangladesh, there'll be about a million people who will lose their farms and lose their homes. And so these are problems we're talking about. So vital message, we need to drastically curtail carbon dioxide emissions, and if we don't do that, 
the climate will become dangerously unstable. We talk about global warming, but the main symptoms that you see as the climate becomes unstable is extreme swings in, in the weather. You know, the weather can be 80 degrees one day and 40 degrees the, the next day. In fact, I was in England um, in April, and right at the end of April, and it was nearly 90 degrees in, in Oxford. Absolutely gorgeous weather. I went down to see an old friend of mine in Kent, and uh, it snowed, and there were winds of 60 miles per hour, and I ended up with bronchitis. And uh, so we're getting these extreme swings, and that's going on all over the planet. Same conversation everywhere on the planet. Isn't the weather crazy these days? Very, very extreme swings. As it gets worse, you'll get higher levels of turbulence in the atmosphere, until eventually you get turbulence, which is extremely unpleasant and, 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 uh, in a, a civilian jet plane. And if you're not strapped in, it will be dangerous to do that. And as the turbulence gets worse, there's a type of turbulence which is called clear air turbulence. And clear air turbulence happens at the top of the atmosphere, where the jets fly about 35, 38,000 feet. And uh, when, when you get clear air turbulence, you might suddenly have the the, the plane move up by a, 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 a G, force of 1G for about two seconds, or drop with a force of 1G. And if the passengers or the air hostesses are not stri strapped in when that happens, it can be very dangerous. And there was one Japanese, uh, Japanese airline flight where it did happen, and one of the air hostesses was killed. They had to land at the nearest airport. But it's a rare event today. It'll be a common event 20 years from now. So I suspect that 20 years from now, an awful lot of CEOs won't want to fly. They'll, they'll be frightened of flying. The airline industry, of course, knows about this very well, Airbus and so on. So they're designing planes which cannot possibly break up at high altitudes, even if you get the most violent turbulence. But they can't stop it being very uncomfortable for the passengers. And so one of the things which I think this will cause, it should have happened a long time ago, is that businessmen will stop flying all the time and instead they will use uh, what we now refer to as virtual presence systems in which you can sit in rooms and have all the screens around in the room and you can see people in the meeting room far away. And very often there are big screens, so that the person you're looking at is uh, life-size there. The Chinese military is doing that everywhere. And the reason for that is if there was a war, if somebody decided to use an atomic weapon, for example, against China, uh, it's essential that they should not know where the head of the military is. So the head of the military can be almost anywhere, and they're interconnected with virtual presence rooms in the Chinese military. But how many business people in England use uh, virtual presence systems? Approximately zero. And uh, that doesn't make sense. Uh, spend three days flying on airplanes when you could have a, a, a very good meeting with virtual presence rooms. Anyway, violent weather... A global temperature of 2 degrees. <coughs> now, in the recent um, sort of agreements in Copenhagen, they all said we will allow the temperature to rise to an average of 2 degrees above the baseline. Ba the baseline means before global warming started. So there wasn't really any global warming in about the middle of the 20th century. So 2 degrees above the baseline means 2 degrees higher than that. Now, if the average of the planet is 2 degrees, you'll have some areas which are 10 degrees. Most of the subtropical areas in Africa, for example, will be about 10 degrees higher than normal. And if you go 10 degrees higher than normal, the productivity of grain growing drops substantially. And of course, there are very detailed models about that, and it's been studied in, in great detail. 
Uh, but although it's been studied, we can't really stop it unless we stop pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But what this is saying is that a large number of farms in sub-Saharan Africa and subtropical areas of Asia will close. And uh, so two degrees sounds innocuous, and so the politicians use it. But in fact, it's going to have some very harmful effects. Now, it's almost certain if we go to two degrees, it's not going to stop there. If we go to two degrees, it's probably going to go to three degrees, and, and very likely it's going to go to four degrees, and at four degrees you're going to get much more severe damage to crop growing capability and of course much more extreme weather, much more violent weather. So you don't want to be on aeroplanes too much in, in that. Now all over the world, quite a different problem, all over the world we've got people, uh, societies that are very wealthy. And if you look at the top money makers in, in Britain, or the top money makers in America, they're earning unbelievable amounts of money. The bankers who cause two million Americans to lose their homes are typically the top bankers in America are taking home about $22 million a year. And it's quite, under, it's quite clear that the top bankers didn't understand banking. Uh, a lot, for, to a lot of people, it was obvious that the crash was coming. There were models that were saying the crash was coming. There's a great book by Michael Lewis called The Great Short. And that describes all the people who did understand that this was coming in, shorted. Lehman Brothers was one of the most brilliant, intelligent uh, financial organizations in the world. And Lehman Brothers was the, 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 really the tipping point of the crash, was when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in 2008. Uh, that was a shock to everybody because they thought the American government would rescue them. And they didn't rescue them. So the day after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, Goldman Sachs had half of its customers trying to withdraw their funds. The same with Morgan Stanley. One of the interesting things about Lehman Brothers going bankrupt is a lot of the highly intelligent people in Lehman Brothers were shorting their own company long before it went bankrupt because they knew that it was on a course which uh, couldn't, couldn't last very long. And the uh, CEO who earned an unbelievable amount of money just assumed that the American government would bail them out. And the American government got fed up with bailing people out, and so Lehman Brothers was the first one where it didn't. Anyway, we've got very rich economies um, side by side with exceedingly poor economies. And travelling around the world, again trying to film this, um, people often uh, think about uh, South Africa, for example. South Africa, wonderful city like Cape Town. Cape Town is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, a bit like San Francisco and uh, other great cities. But right next to the city, side by side, they've got people living in shanty towns and these sort of conditions. And if you go to Lima, for example, Lima is a, a very pleasant city. It's got good universities, it's got good orchestras, it's got a lot of theatre, good restaurants. It's a very civilised uh, city, something like two uh, million people. But there's a belt around Lima which they just don't talk about. They refer to it as the misery belt. But, but nobody refers to it. You just don't speak about it in polite conversation in Lima. So you've got two economies. Economy A and economy B right next to each other where, where they take no notice of one another. And I, I thought at a time that South Africa was probably the worst um, of these economy A and economy B. But we went around the world filming and we found they're every, everywhere, all manner of countries have got um, the shantytown slum areas, and in some cases absolutely huge. In uh, Bombay, an apartment in Bombay costs you more than in any other city on the planet at the time. 
Bombay is the city of Bollywood. It's the city of the Indian advertising industry, which is huge. It's the city of the Indian finance industry. But it's got a, a shantytown area in Bombay. It's got about 4 million people in it. And they won't let the place in. They won't pay taxes. And so they live in Bangalore. Uh, and uh, so, they, again, these, these two are, are side by side. So this is one of the severe uh, problems that we have. <coughs> now, this is an extraordinary machine. This, was, this picture was taken in Cape Town. We've got a thing going on in the school at Oxford where we believe the best way to uh, cure cancer, uh, uh, static cancer, it wouldn't work with blood cancer. In this case, it's focusing on the, on the brain of this patient. And that, that patient there, that, that person there has got brain cancer. And here we have a machine which has got a cyclotron in here, and it's using a beam of subatomic particles to photograph the uh, cancer very precisely. And uh, when it's photographed it and made the right decisions, it can fire a very narrow beam of either protons or neutrons at the cancer, and it can kill the cancerous cells. And this is a, a piece of technology which needs much more science than it's got at the moment. It needs uh, appropriate mathematics so you can translate this into uh, medical discipline. But 10 years from now, this will probably be the primary way of uh, killing uh, static cancer in the body. But that photograph, within a cricket ball's throw of where that area is, you, you've got this. Um, so once again, there's something to say for extremely wealthy people. At the moment, it would have, you'd have to be very rich to be able to get your cancer cured with one of these machines. And that's sitting right next to one of the most terrible shanty towns in, in, in the world there. And so again, you see these things uh, side by side. So vital message, there are three billion people living in extreme poverty. Uh, most of them below the age of 15. They have lots of children there, and so there are far more young people than old people. And uh, there are one billion people living on less than one dollar a day. There's a wonderful book on this by Paul Collier. We went to a lecture by him last night, a book called The Bottom Billion. This is a brilliantly written description of the billion poorest people on the planet and why they stay in that condition. Uh, all manner of aid organizations have tried to rescue them and almost nothing has worked. And this is described brilliantly in Paul Collier's book. And in the last chapter, he says what the solutions to that are. And I thought the book was absolutely wonderful until I got to the last chapter. The last chapter got a sinking feeling. <laughs> We've already tried that and it hasn't worked. So there needs to be a very fundamental new thinking about what we do about the poorest people on the planet. Now we can talk about the future because there are some types of trend which are going to continue. Some trends are very high momentum, like a freight train. In fact, about 100 major trends are very high momentum, so they're going to continue. It would take a huge amount of effort and force to deflect them from their momentum. So the increase in population, the amount of food we need for feeding the population of the Earth, about, about 100 trends. Um, so in the uh, 20th century, most people who forecast the future just looked at the high momentum trends. But now it's become clear that in technology, we have something entirely different. Instead of being high momentum, constant momentum is constant acceleration. And this first became very clear when Gordon Moore, who was one of the founders of the great uh, chip finder Intel, 
uh, created what's now known as Moore's Law, in which he said the number of transistors on a chip will double every 18 months. And that was an amazing forecast because they doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled. He said that to the Moore's, he put down Moore's Law in 1965, and the number of transistors on a chip is still doubling every 18 months. And so it's perhaps the most impressive, most accurate forecast in the history of forecasting. And uh, Gordon Moore's net worth increased at exactly the same rate as the number of transistors on the Well, now the reason for that was that as we <coughs> get better technology, it gives us better tools to, to create the next generation of technology. So we are now seeing computers increase in power, doubling in power every 18 months, or the supercomputers rather less than 18 months. Uh, the most powerful supercomputer is Cray. Cray for a long time has made uh, brilliant supercomputers. They have an unbelievably powerful machine called Jaguar, um, where we measure its speed in, uh, in petaflops. Petaflops means a, a thousand a trillion, and uh, Jaguar operates at 1.75 thousand trillion floating point operations per second. It's a staggering speed for computing. That's number one. Where do you think number two comes from? Shop. China. China has suddenly produced supercomputers more powerful um, than anywhere else except America. And there's only one company that's more powerful at the moment, and that's Cray. But there's an absolute battle between America and Japan to, and China to get the most powerful supercomputers in the world. And they are going increasing in power faster than a Moore's law rate. But there are no other things in technology. For example, we want to be able to scan the human brain so that we can understand and photograph the neurons and how the neurons are interconnected. One of the great sciences in the next 10 years will be neuroscience, in which we learn at an increasingly rapid rate how the human brain works and how we can change things in the human brain. So uh, neuroscience uh, in Oxford is a great study of uh, uh, new, new graduates. And, and that, that's uh, increasing at about, uh, at Moore's law rate, about 18 months per, per uh, about, it's doubling about every 18 months. And so we have uh, capability of one technology and then another technology going up like this. With computing, we talk about singularity. And the singularity is a time when we get computing and intelligence so fast that it's uh, extremely difficult for humans to control it. And uh, so this is a, an interesting point in the future. Probably the singularity will arrive at about uh, 2035, between 2035 and 2045. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes in science you get sort of fantasy uh, growing up. And so there are lots of sort of lunatic fantasies about the singularity at the present time. And uh, one of the uh, leaders of this is Ray, Ray Kurzweil. And uh, Ray Kurzweil says we'll eventually understand the human brain so well that we can replicate it in a machine. So you can have your brain replicated in a computer. And when you replicate, it will have consciousness. Consciousness is a byproduct of extreme complexity. And so Kurzweil is saying you can achieve everlasting life by downloading your brain onto a computer and keeping it running in that way. We went to a beautiful service at Oxford New College, which has got one of the most wonderful choirs I've ever heard, and it so happened that the Bishop of Salisbury was preaching at that and reading the words of the service, and the words of the service, I'm sure you're well aware, is that if you believe in Jesus, you can achieve everlasting life. 
and there were quite a lot of words which went with that, I thought, my God, those were exactly the same words as Kurzweil, saying that you can achieve everlasting life by downloading your brain into a machine. Well, anyway, Kurzweil, in my view, is absolute nonsense. And uh, in the University of Oxford, nobody's allowed to use the word singularity because although it's going to happen, that machine power is going to happen, nevertheless, it's become associated with uh, crackpot uh, ideas. And this is one of the problems. We've got to make sure that the science we use for dealing with the big problems of the planet are respectable and it's only too easy for crackpot ideas to spread around the world. Anyway, we've got huge machines like that, uh, supercomputers. Now, one uh, grand illusion of our time, which is much uh, publicised by Kurzweil, he says when, when computers become very intelligent, you won't be able to tell the difference between a computer and a human being. And computer intelligence, he says, will look exactly the same as human intelligence. And that, once again, is an absolute fantasy. Artificial intelligence will be entirely different from human intelligence. Machines will become... In the not very far future, in the lifetimes of many of you, machines will become a million times more intelligent than we are. But it will be intelligence that's utterly different in nature and that you couldn't possibly replicate in, in the human brain. In fact, quite a lot of the new institutes that we've got tackling very big problems you know, are now uh, uh, telling you the same story, and that is we need to understand this in enormously more detail, so we need exceedingly powerful computer models and we know what those models ought to do, but they're so complicated that we cannot run them on even the most powerful computer. And I'm, I'm getting that from people designing future voltaic cells, and people who are looking at the galaxy, and people who are in George Soros' group looking at the economies, and a lot of different people all say we need immensely powerful computers. Anyway, computers won't be like humans. They'll be utterly different. And we have all sorts of technologies. Let me skip over these a bit. <coughs> these are some of the technologies uh, we refer to. Nanotechnology, this is the most powerful uh, circuitry in nanotechnology. It's called graphene. This is a, uh, a flat uh, surface. Carbon atoms can be connected together because they've got four links on them. So carbon atoms can make graphite or they can make a diamond. Or they can make a, a carbon nanotube like that or they can make uh, graphene. Now, carbon nanotube is so tiny that you can get a thousand of them onto something which is the size of one transistor in a computer today. And uh, in a carbon nanotube, you can put a, a lot of logic gates. And uh, three years ago, people would have interrupted me and said, yes, but it's almost impossible to manufacture them. And that's what we thought three years ago. Today, there's a French company which is uh, selling them by the tonne Imagine how much logic a ton of carbon nanotubes is. But they're very dangerous. They're much more dangerous than asbestos. If you've got them in your lungs, they do enormous harm to you. They're going to be very, very important for medical purposes, but we've got to make sure that we uh, put them into a, a case where it cannot uh, damage human beings or, or anything else. Anyway, a lot of technology like that. A blood cell is 7,400 nanometers across, and so you put an awful lot of logic into something the size of a blood cell. So one characteristic of medicine is you're going to have things in your bloodstream, uh, flowing through your bloodstream, and different things will have different purposes. You're going to entirely different things in the brain, and different things again in the stomach. And so scientists have come to the conclusion that they'd like uh, mass produced general purpose uh, vehicles, one that floats around the blood, one which floats around the stomach, and the other one which floats around the brain. 
and so they go to China and said, could you mass produce in enormous quantities these three types of vehicles and then we'll do entirely different things with them and this will have a very big effect on, on medicine. The uh, total amount of knowledge in the world is approximately doubling every year. So an entire huge increase in knowledge coming from everywhere. Now the power to process knowledge is uh, doubling every 18 months. So this is Moore's law. And the total knowledge capability is the amount of knowledge multiplied by the capability to process the knowledge. And uh, if that continues to be true, doubling every year for the rest of the century, that is going to be 90 to the, uh, 2 to the power of 90. And 2 to the power of 90 is an unbelievably large number, a number far beyond our capability to conceive what that number is like. But basically, that is what is going to happen to computing enormous power in enormously large problems. We've got one group which is trying to study the future of computing algorithms and how you can recognize patterns by studying the universe. And I said, why, why the universe? Why are you studying the universe? They said, well, that's all there is. <laughs> anyway, studying the universe, as you can imagine, <coughs> generates an absolutely enormous amount of data. So an unimaginable change in computing capability. So vital message, technology is going to bring a total break with all past experience as we move into the future. And we don't really want to be caught by surprise with that. And so I'm doing everything I can to try and persuade the brilliant people in the School at Oxford to understand the, uh, these changes and look far enough into the future that you can anticipate the, the dangers, the problems, the ways you can control it. We don't want computers getting more intelligent than we are in such a way that they can take over humankind. How do you stop that? Well, once you start to ask the question, it's easy to find answers to that. But it's important to look ahead and make sure you've got the answers to that before it gets too late. We say this about many other things. Uh, by 2030, there'll be more Muslims on the planet than uh, Christians. And so another concern is we've got to get the Christians to make friends with the Muslims. In many ways, they're very similar. The uh, writings, the teachings of Christ were very similar to the teachings of the Prophet in the Muslim world, and both the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the Prophet have been grossly distorted by all of the uh, artificial trappings of religion that we've added uh, to it since. So we, we don't want to get into a situation where there's going to be ongoing war between the Muslims and the Christians because that would be devastating. This is a genetically modified flower, genetically modified corn. Very interesting situation with genetically modified food. About uh, six years ago, there was a little banning it in Europe. It's still in existence. So you go to your supermarket and you can't buy anything which is genetically modified food. If you live in America, you have genetically modified food for breakfast every day and for other machine meals, that many of the things on the shelves of the supermarkets are genetically modified. And farmers can make more profit, they can get higher yield, you can get genetically modified foods to grow in poor quality soils, and, and, and so on. And so here we have a sort of unintended controlled experiment in which you've got one huge continent where we can study the life of people where they didn't eat any genetically modified food in another continent where the people did eat genetically modified food. And as far as we can see, there's absolutely no difference. So it looks as though genetically modified foods have no effect whatsoever, have no harmful effect, and 
no beneficial effect either, it's just the same as ordinary food. The difference is the farmers make more profit, or Monsanto makes more profit. And uh, we can create genetically modified orchids. Uh, this is a, a self-pollinating genetically modified orchid. And we can uh, genetically modify creatures, and have done with some creatures. But if we did it to humans, it was common to say five years ago, don't ever genetically modify humans, because it will be passed on to children and their children and their children forever, and things will go wrong. So you'll be creating a situation where you're making things go wrong, which will be irreversible, because the genetic modifications will be passed on forever. But then we suddenly realize that uh, we can give humans a 24th chromosome. You've all got uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes. We can give you a 24th chromosome. And in the beginning, that was done uh, in order to try and uh, use genetic uh, techniques for curing some of the very nasty diseases. Quite a lot of uh, diseases. Huntington's disease is absolutely terrible. And it's got about one specific gene. And by putting a 24th chromosome into a person, we can cure Huntington's disease. In fact, we can get to a stage where Huntington's disease is not, not passed on biologically to children. But once we began to use the 24th chromosome for doing that, then it became clear that we could modify humans for other reasons. You want your children to have blue eyes. You want your children to be more intelligent. What other factors uh, relate to genetics? What well, huge number of factors in our personality relate to genetics? And so we now have the capability to modify the genes of people. And uh, yeah, so, so if you've got a 24th chromosome, you can design it so that it can have gene, gene packs plugged into it. Uh, and you might imagine a world uh, 20 years from now where you go into a shop, rather like a blockbuster video store, where you can go and buy DVDs or music and things like that. And imagine a shop 20 years from now where you can buy gene packs, which you can uh, plug into your 24th chromosome. Now, another way of modifying humans, in the video games industry, they're putting a huge amount of money. Uh, very often it looks like this one, very crude. And this will become much cleaner, more simpler. But uh, we now have uh, video games where you can move the mouse on the screen by thought. Your brain thinking about it. And as your brain thinks about it, there's a very, very tiny signal which is picked up by this. And your brain has got an extraordinary ability to learn things. These are the neurons and the connections between the neurons. And we can rewire the brain. And we do rewire the brain all the time, every day. And if we put something artificial in the brain or something artificial which the brain relates to, then uh, the brain can rewire itself astonishingly quickly. I was getting to realize a fuzzy vision. And then my wife here took me into a a sort of cheap street shop and had my eyes tested and they immediately said, my God, you, you'll be blind in five years' time. And I said, you're kidding. They said, no, you've got a growth on your lens. You can't stop that growth. You can't cut the growth out with a laser and it, it spreads. It's not a growth which just spreads. So you've got to go to a surgeon. I said, I'm not going to buy a surgeon. Uh, anyway, next day I was in the surgeon. The surgeon's name was Dr. Cole, and so I was making jokes about old King Cole. And we went into the office of Dr. Cole, and she was absolutely gorgeous. She was about 30 with hot pants, <laughs> and so she asked a lot of questions. I asked her questions. And then I said, uh, who, who will do the surgery? And she said, I am the surgeon. And so I had to 
my, I said, well, what are you doing with me? She said, well, check out your eyeballs. And we cleaned all the stuff out of them and uh, put new substance into the eyeballs, which is very well disinfected. And then we took uh, out your lenses and we put in an acrylic lens, totally artificial lens, with a microprocessor to help it to focus correctly. I said, you're not going to do that to me. And anyway, they, they did. And eventually, I got the bandages taken off. And so I can't see light, thank goodness. I looked at my hands over. See the hairs on my hand looked out the window. There's something gone wrong, it's jittering. Everything, everywhere I look, it's jittering. Something's gone wrong. She said, No, 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 nothing's gone wrong. You've got something artificial in, in the sense in your brain now. And your brain has got to learn how to use it. The signals from this, of course, are quite different from a natural eye. And I said, Well, how long will it take the brain to learn that? I thought she'd say, Six months or something. She said, Well, at your age, maybe about 30 minutes. <laughs> and in fact, about 15 minutes later, the jittering stopped. And I suddenly realized I could read without glasses, read fine print without glasses. I could not see every dot in the Milky Way. This was in South Africa, and we still see the Milky Way. And <clears throat> what was happening is the brain was rewiring itself very rapidly in a very complex way. And we refer to that as plasticity. Our brain has extraordinary plasticity to rewire itself. <laughs> and so we can put things into the brain which will be great for the video games industry and uh, you can imagine a few people maybe 20 years from now have a million electrodes inside their skull you don't want to put the electrodes next to the neuron because they would um, ultimately cause the neuron to die so inside the skull nanotechnology very tiny and uh, so anyway, these <coughs> types of techniques are ways of re-engineering the human being himself, re-engineering aspects of homo sapiens. And uh, five years ago, uh, there was a great uh, feeling of opposition to that. The churches uh, oppose it totally, so you, you must never do it. God did not intend this to happen. Uh, but now it's growing very rapidly, and the thing which will make the difference, I think, in America, at any rate, it's the thing which makes a difference with everything else there, and that is, does it become a consumer marketplace? Is this something that American consumers will want? Are you going to get headlines in the women's magazines uh, like that? And uh, yes, almost certainly you are. Are you going to get uh, statements about six uh, brain implants your child must have? Uh, and uh, almost certainly yes. So the consumer marketplace takes over... And uh, when that happens, I don't know whether it'll be 20 years or 30 years, maybe 40 years from now, but I'm sure it's going to happen. And we're going to move into an era where it becomes high fashion to modify uh, your, your brain capability, possibly modify your gene capability. So a vital message. <coughs> Transhumanism will take off when it becomes part of the consumer marketplace. Now, there are lots of people who uh, say, we've got to stop growth. Um, we measure uh, countries by G GDP per capita, and there seems to be a, a, a race between all the countries of the world to increase the GDP per capita, get the highest GDP per capita. The world is like a massive horse race where the winner is the one which has the highest GDP per capita. But this uh, causes us to create a society which pumps more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. There's a very interesting set of studies which measure human happiness. And in America, human happiness went up quite strongly from World War II until about 1963. 
And since 1963, it reached a plateau and it's drifted down. So happiness in the United States has actually gone down since 1963. But the, uh, the amount they consume in dollars has gone up enormously. <clears throat> Something like 20 times what it used to be in 1963. So people are beginning to say, what's the point? And uh, we, we have to stop growth. But there's no way that you can stop growth because China is going to grow as fast as it can. India has determined that it will become a larger economy than China 30 years from now. They'll certainly have a larger population than China 30 years from now. And if they have uh, the same GDP per capita, then that will give India a larger economy than China. India is a democracy, the world's largest democracy, whereas China is totalitarian. And as we go through the history of totalitarian states, they always go wrong, or they always have gone wrong, sooner or later. So the Indians are saying, China's going to go wrong because we're a democracy, we're the biggest democracy in the world. Anyway, you've got this horse race for GDP per capita. Now, there's a different way to look at that, and that is to say, you can grow as fast as you want, providing that it's eco-affluence. What I mean by eco-affluence is affluence which doesn't harm the ecology in any way. And there are all manner of different examples we can think of growth which doesn't harm the economy. In fact, there's a near an infinite number of them. And I think what is probably going to happen if we're going to live on a planet in a decent way is that just about everything is going to become eco-affluence. So eco-affluence will become the whole of life. All the things that you spend money on are things which give you enjoyment or give you things which consumers want, but which do not do damage to the environment. And this is a big subject, and explore it in a lot of detail, and it makes absolute sense. So, vital message, future economic growth must eventually be eco-affluent growth. As the temperature becomes warm, you're going to get people saying, well... Uh, global warming is going to make some places nice and some places horrible. Uh, Dubai was built in about seven years, one of the most spectacular examples of uh, city building ever. Uh, the warmest rivals of Shanghai, the rebuilding of Shanghai was spectacular. And that happened in, in about seven years. And now, uh, as we get global warming, you're going to get some people, maybe the sheiks who had the money to build Dubai, who say, you know, in Dubai it's about 130 degrees centigrade. And, 130 degrees Fahrenheit in, in some horrible place. And so they're already beginning to talk about places where we could uh, move to. Um, and so these might be referred to as climate change cities. <coughs> so I think it's inevitable. We're going to get large numbers of new cities, not as big as Dubai probably, many of them with uh, beautiful architecture and very different uh, relationship to cars. So modern city design, one of the uh, uh, institutes of God the School of Oxford is the city of the future, studying different designs of the city of the future. And when you study the city of the future, the conclusion you come to is that most cities on Earth have been destroyed by the motor car. They would be much pleasanter if you kept the car under control in one way or another, or separated the car from the pedestrians. And if you start designing a new city, there are lots of ways, easy ways to do that. So <coughs> we're probably going to get lots of beautiful architecture, climate change cities in the north of Finland, in the south of Patagonia, in the north of Canada, will build cool cities in cool places. And uh, many of these will have uh, windows which are solar panels, so win windows generating electricity. And so cities that are really designed for the modern age, uh, gardens clipped by uh, robots, uh, artificial archipelagos, 
Um, artists' colonies, we may not need petroleum refineries, or not many of them, so this is a vision of a petroleum refinery that's been converted into an artist colony. Um, so these cities of the future, um, beautiful flowers if we want that, very fast trains. Uh, if you go to Shanghai uh, from the airport, you go from the airport to the city centre in about 10 minutes. And this is on a Maglev train, it never touches the ground. And it goes, that particular train goes at 434 kilometres per hour. And the Japanese have uh, uh, shown a prototype almost at 581 kilometres per hour. Um, so this will be very fast transport in an age when air flight might become too turbulent, uh, can link the climate change in cities. So climate change cities will be in places like this. Uh, Patagonia is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Jerry Del Fuego, uh, George Soros has uh, spent a vast amount of his fortune buying beautiful land in, in uh, Patagonia. And uh, lots of climate change cities in Canada, Finland, so those are the types of areas where the, um, the, the planet will benefit from global warming, local area will benefit from, from global warming. And this may be the fastest rise in, in real estate prices anywhere. I used to go to Dubai a lot and I said, well, where's the money coming from? The money that was being spent in Dubai was absolutely unbelievable. And what they'd say, well, you've got to understand that real estate values in Dubai are going up faster than any ever. Fastest rate on the planet. So Citibank is investing in it, Morgan Stanley's investing in it, all the big players are investing in it, that's where the money's coming from. And suddenly they stopped going up and Dubai, you know, went into the most extreme crash. Uh, shortly after the crash, it opened the tallest building in, in the world, twice the height of the um, World Trade Centers, which were destroyed in, in New York. And the top six floors of that outrageous building held one person, one person's apartment. Needless to say, a chic, vast amounts of oil money. Anyway, um, vital message. If a climate does go to the dogs, the rich people will be okay because they will have great uh, lifestyles in uh, climate change cities. And many of the great old cities, I think, will, will do, do very well. People really want to live in Buenos Aires. New York, New York is probably, I guess, 30 years from now going to be about the most exciting city on the planet. But it will have dikes like Holland uh, to keep out the rising seawater. And uh, so this is a change in cities over here. We won't see another Concorde. We won't see more public supersonic planes. But we're now about to launch a hypersonic uh, plane. And the first thing that's going to do is to take goods up to the space shuttle, uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, space platforms, and, and come, come down to Earth again. But it's really being paid for by the military because the military would like to get large quantities of troops extremely quickly to any troubled area on the planet. So they'd like a plane which goes up into orbit and then flies around orbit and then comes down at the place which is the trouble spot. Now that plane will probably be in service in the military in about 10 years from now. And perhaps 10 years after that you'll get a civilian version of it. It will be extremely expensive. So it will be the bankers who earn 22 million a year who want to fly on hypersonic planes, but these things are coming. And six times the speed of sound, that basically is the speed of something in orbit. So if you want to go from here to Australia, you go up into orbit, which takes 30 minutes, and then float around the Earth. Uh, you go around the, earth, uh, the entire Earth in 90 minutes in orbit, 
and then spend about 30 minutes landing in Australia. So this will be part of the, the, the you know, the forces expanding globalism around, around the planet. Now the population, the demographers studying population, this is being studied in great detail with also all sorts of authorities, they pretty much agree that the population is going to go up, increase until it gets to 9.2 billion, and that will be the peak, 9.2 billion that will start to slowly drift down. And today we're finding that the number of children per woman is, is going down. We refer to that as the fertility rate. And in countries which did have a very high fertility rate, a lot of the, the poor developing countries are now um, getting much, much lower for fertility rate. Taiwan's an extreme example. I used to have seven children per woman, and now it's got 0.7 children per woman. Part of the reason for that is that women have discovered that they can have a good life if they don't have lots of children. And so they get good jobs, they work for Goldman Sachs, they have an interesting lifestyle, they uh, put off having a child as long as they can. Many of them don't get married, even if they do have a child, it's very often only, only one child because they want to go back to the uh, high-paying jobs and nightclubs of uh, Taiwan. So this is a sort of win-win situation. You're making life much better for women, and the uh, byproduct of that is you're getting far less children, so you're going to have ultimately uh, a smaller population on the planet. But when we get up to that peak there, highly incidentally the peak in the demographic models is uh, 2052. So 2052 peak of the Earth's population. And when you get up to that sort of level, you'll have unbelievable wealth in the richest countries, in the richest people. But the uneducated nations will have unspeakable poverty unless we do something about it. And it's not all that expensive to do something about it. The thing you have to do about it is to get into the shanty towns, get into the slums of India, get into the favelas of Rio, and put education into place. Make sure all children get education, all children have the opportunity to uh, get good education. And one of the things we, we now understand very clearly is if you look at a rich country, you've got a, a, a normal distribution, Gaussian distribution, or IQ. And if you go to the poorest places on the planet, the worst shanty towns of India, you've got exactly the same distribution of IQ. So a lot of the, the kids who are having their lives ruined in those uh, terrible towns have got uh, high, high IQs on them. And if a high IQ child has no education, no opportunity, no possibility of doing anything worthwhile, what happens? They become high IQ criminals. And so we're now seeing in South Africa, for example, large numbers of very high IQ criminals emerging from the shanty towns. And uh, so this is something that's very important to change. Now, one thing which w would really be uh, very grim is if uh, terrorism became intelligent. It's my view that all terrorism so far has been unintelligent. You've got to be pretty dumb to be a suicide bomber. But uh, it's perfectly possible to have intelligent uh, terrorism. Now, the uh, global um, temperature of the Earth, it'll get to one degree above the baseline in 2021, 11 years from now. And it'll get to two degrees probably in about 2045. Uh, but as that happens, then you begin to get an excessive warmth in the band, which I'm um, colouring brown there. So by the time you get up to two degrees, there'll be quite a lot of farms in, in this area, which will close the productivity of grain growing, will drop. 
and you're going to get extreme dust storms when you get up to those temperatures. Three degrees uh, with the present model, something like about uh, 2062. But what, what this is saying is we mustn't let that happen. The model is saying if you go on with business as usual, this, this is about the time you get to get to three degrees. And we want to take lots of action to make sure we don't get there. Four degrees uh, later on in the, in the century. Uh, by 2012, we will have 7 billion people, pretty close, close to 7 billion people. By 2039, 8 billion people. By uh, 2052, 9.2 billion people. But almost certainly, if global warming follows the pattern I'm describing there, uh, uh, almost certainly it will be impossible to feed 9.2 billion people. Huge, huge number of people. And uh, so it would be a wonderful world if you really want the climate change cities where you've got great new architecture, great culture, uh, good temperatures, lots of wealthy people, extreme security in the design of the cities, and most areas free of motor cars there. Uh, and it would be terrible if you live in the, uh, the shanty town cities. So if we don't do something about it, this is what the world is going to look like um, 20 years, 30 years from, from now. And uh, so, uh, this, this city is in India, it has one toilet for every uh, 1,700 people. It's actually in Mumbai, one of the richest cities in the world. <coughs> the population is doubling there every 20 years. And all humans are saying have normal distribution of IQ, whether they live in this type of city or, or this type of city. So, uh, uh, now one perfume spray. I always imagine the Metropolitan Opera House in, in uh, New York, where you've got <coughs> very often the wealthiest people in New York uh, there. It's, it's usually full, there are not many empty seats in, uh, in the Met. And if you had somebody at the top uh, uh, balcony there with a woman's perfume spray, and the woman's perfume spray uh, contained Ebola or, or a Marburg virus, <coughs> and it's designed so it's let off with a timer, so the person who put it there is left. And in the second act of the opera, that goes off. It would kill almost everybody in the opera house. And it's a grim death, Ebola, who bleed from every orifice. And so this is, you know, one of the worst visions of intelligent terrorism. We don't want the world to get to a stage where, where we start to get intelligent terrorism. So vital message, we'll really be in trouble if terrorism becomes <coughs> intelligent. And so we really need to demonstrate that we're prepared to change the conditions in, in the poorest countries to help the people who might otherwise become uh, terrorists. So this, I think, is a very important part of the future, if the future's going to work. Anyway, one degree above the baseline, the Earth can support nine billion people. Uh, two degrees above the baseline, it probably can't support more than seven billion people, and that number is very variable depending upon uh, <coughs> genetically modified farming other um, techniques for uh, creating additional types of food. Three degrees above the baseline, the Earth probably cannot support more than five billion people. Uh, four degrees above the baseline, it probably can't support more than about four billion people. And, uh, and yet you, you may have the climate change studies, which are, which are quite wonderful in the cooler uh, latitudes at that time. Uh, so luxurious climate change studies will coexist with starvation. But if the Earth can only support 4 billion people, and the, the, the population of the planet, I, I suspect, will go down to 4 billion people this century. Sometime. James Lovelock, you know, the great James Lovelock, who 
created uh, Gaia and everything. So it's, uh, at the end of the century, the Earth won't be able to support more than 500 million people. And a lot of uh, people who, who take that apart say Lovelock is, will become regarded as the Malthus of the 21st century. But more serious ecologists say, well, Lovelock may be too pessimistic. You get all sorts of changes in technology. So Christopher Dekel, for example, is one of the greatest lecturers on ecology, says the Earth probably can't support more than 2.5 billion people. If we make a lot of changes, better food, a lot of things which you might change, it might go up to 4 billion. But how do you get from 9 billion to 4 billion? And this would be farming on a scale never imagined, never conceived of. Uh, all farming depends on water, and many of the aquifers are running out, and as the temp temperatures get higher, that will cause a lot of uh, parched land in the warmer latitudes. This is the Indus River <coughs> in Pakistan, and it goes from the Himalayas all the way down to the ocean, and it's the only major river in Pakistan, and they build no end of canals from it to the farmlands. All, all over Pakistan you've got farmland which is fed by the Indus River. The Indus River is fed by glaciers in the Himalayas, and those glaciers are rapidly shrinking. And so uh, it's probably not possible to stop the shrinking. It's too late. So um, 30 years from now, the Indus River may be only a quarter of the water that it has today. And if that happens, then you're going to get mass starvation, or potential starvation in Pakistan. And before they die of starvation, they'll move in enormous numbers across the border into India. And India's going to do everything it can to stop them. <coughs> India's building the most extraordinary weapons. Um, a cruise missile is a missile which flies through, through the valley, flies at a, a low altitude, and there's uh, these extremely difficult software to, to make it avoid the rocks and terrain and to avoid radars, avoid things which might shoot it down. By far the best software of cruise missiles comes from India. In fact, by far the best software for anything comes from India these days. They're brilliant uh, software writers, something I know very strongly because my background is software. And software is something you can measure in all sorts of ways. So they, they built a cruise missile, they demonstrated it going 2,000 miles to a target where there was a window in the target and it went uh, along terrains where you probably couldn't stop it and went straight through the window on a target 2,000 miles away. It's got a fairly narrow... Uh, body like this, but uh, the, the body was uh, 13 inches across, but uh, today they have a hydrogen bomb about 50 times Hiroshima, which is about 11 inches across. So this cruise missile could carry um, a hydrogen bomb 50 times Hiroshima. Now, while the Indians are very good at software, the Russians are very good at making the engines for <coughs> powerful missiles. And so a corporation was formed about a year ago, a joint corporation between the Russians and the Indians, and the goal is to take the existing Indian uh, cruise missiles, which can deliver a hydrogen bomb, and make them travel eight times the speed of sound. And uh, that vehicle will be being tested about two years from now. And so what that is saying is, India's not going to be very happy with Pakistan trying to move across its frontier, and it's uh, likely to take all sorts of action to try and stop that. Um, so we'd like to somehow find ways to stop that before it gets to this stage. Um, if, we, if we don't make very strong changes, we're going to see large numbers of people uh, dying of famine. Now you can go to all the conferences, you know, Copenhagen, 
all the conferences on climate, global warming, nobody, nobody talks about famine. And yet famine is going to be a consequence of the uh, climate deteriorating very badly. And so what this is really saying, we're not connecting the dots. If you really look at the consequences of uh, severe global warming, consequences are going to be extreme, famine, and uh, now we need to understand that fairly early because you can't correct that situation in five years. Um, if we understood it now, we said let's work out all the ways in which we can move to a world in which there would not be famine. It would be fairly expensive to do that. There are lots of different actions that we could take. One of the uh, institutes we've just set up at the school is uh, an institute for taking grain. Grain means rice or corn or wheat or grain crops, the main cereal crops. And they've got rather thick roots. And we found a way to genetically modify them so that the root has little hairs, which may grow uh, two feet or so, thinner than the human hair. And those very thin roots can suck up nutrients from nutrient-poor soils. So if this works, <laughs> it's very experimental, but it'll probably work. This is going to give us the capability to, to grow corn and wheat and things like that in, in soil where you can't really grow it today, nutrient-poor soil. So there are many ways, many actions we can take to try and avoid famine of the future. But almost certainly we can't stop it unless we uh, lessen the rate at which we're pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And uh, so... I've got a section of science here. Let me skip over them. They, they talk about probabilities. And I learned to use the colours of the rainbow to discuss probabilities, where red is almost certain and the violet end of the spectrum is highly improbable. So you can apply that to many different things. Uh, if you apply it to the subjects we're talking about here, uh, population growth, uh, almost certain. Uh, Single-party rule ends in China. Um, Sooner or later, it's likely to happen, but very, un very unpredictable. Um, uh, contact with creatures on faraway planets, people would say, highly uncertain today. But we've now discovered about uh, 700 uh, planets far, far away. All the planets we've discovered so far are too large to have life. And that's because our instruments can only detect big planets. So the launching instruments now which can detect small planets. And almost certainly we're going to, uh, I think 10 years from now, we'll be detecting planets which can support life. And uh, 30 years from now, I think we'll probably discover many hundreds of planets which can support life. So then we'll be measuring them with spectroscopes and so on. Probably we'll be claiming that some of them have life. We'll try to build very powerful telescopes. And it will probably be a very good idea to keep away from planets which have cities or roads like we've got now. But I think it's very likely that when we find planets which have got life, we won't see any roads, we won't see any cities. And then we will desperately want to, to, to get to them. They're 70 light years away, which uh, is an incredibly uh, long, long distance. Uh, we're, we're talking about trillions of miles. The only way you could get to them would be by building a very small spaceship uh, with a nuclear drive which accelerates continuously. Accelerates constantly for, for about 12 months. Uh, and so, very slow acceleration, and for 12 months it gets to, say, 90% of the speed of light. 
And then you switch off the engine and it just cruises 90% of the speed of light until it gets close to these uh, faraway planets and then it slows down and then you get it going into orbit. And by that time we'll have the nanotechnology robotics which will be very impressive, so sending thousands of the robot devices down and onto the planet. Uh, I think this is almost an inevitable consequence of the fact that we're now discovering planets around far, far, far away stars. Uh, anyway, um, I'm digressing. Um, global warming, one degree, is, I think, certain. Two degrees, I think, certain. Um, three degrees, high probability, but uh, you're really in trouble if you get to three degrees. Um, four degrees, average probability. Five degrees, uh, low probability. Uh, six degrees, I don't think it's likely to happen, but there's a very good book. Uh, maybe the best book written on double warming is one which is called Six Degrees. And uh, it describes one degree above the baseline, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, and six degrees by Mark Landers. And that's a great read. Really describes the effect of global warming very well. Anyway, th these are colours representing probabilities. Now, let, let me go over the next part rather fast. I've taken the, a lot of different uh, subjects and added probability uh, charts to them. Technology is like an avalanche, it's, uh, it's not going to stop. You've got the Moore's law, you know, each technology uh, accelerating so you get the next generation of technologies faster. The Moore's law effect accelerating speed, accelerating force. And uh, I like to list those technologies which will have a large effect. So, again, let me skip through this uh, fairly quickly. Um, and I could summarize technologies by saying, there are going to be about uh, 17 of them, which, which are very important technologies. The, the one, ones which you've got here. Um, so Oxford University now is taking that list and saying, let's work out which ones are going to be important, which ones can we uh, find uh, funding for, so that we get uh, organizations funding uh, research. And uh, unlike in the past, uh, the funding of research, I think, ought to be asking the question, what are the technologies which will be the most important? What are the technologies which will change humanity to the, to the most? And when I started to take this viewpoint, the previous Vice-Chancellor raised five billion dollars, uh, five million pounds, more than uh, Oxford was uh, raising before in looking at technology. So th these are the great technologies of the future. And, uh, Freeman Dyson uses a very memorable phrase. He describes some technologies as being infinite in all directions. And so all the technologies here look as though they have almost infinite capability. I shouldn't say infinite. You've got to say almost infinite. Nothing can be infinite. And uh, so this is an avalanche which is going to continue for the whole century. Now let me skip over some comments about uh, this is parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And uh, the greatest authority is uh, James Hansen, and he says we've got to reduce uh, carbon in the atmosphere to 35 parts per million. So he's publicised that heavily uh, with big uh, advertisements saying 350 in the main papers of the world, and he gets students to do things like this. And uh, But we can look at that uh, and look at what's happening in climate change le legislation. And it will be my view that by mid-century, 9 billion people is virtually certain 350 parts per million is virtually impossible. We're not going to get down to that level of the climate. Two degrees above the baseline, virtually certain. Uh, three degrees above the baseline, high probability, though we certainly don't want it to happen. We should do everything to try and stop getting there. Uh, extreme water shortages, virtually certain, which means that uh, a large number of farms close 
average probability one third of the farms in subtropical and tropical countries will close, adding very severely to the famine problem. And uh, so famine in many countries, high probability. So uh, that's what it looks like today. Unless we do something which is a major change in where we are, those are the probabilities that we can put on things. Now that's a grim story. And today, uh, when people look at the future, they look five years in the future or ten years in the future. Almost nobody looks 40 years in the future. So, strong message here. You're not going to be able to stop famine in 2050 unless you understand it now and start to take the actions, because it will take a long time. So, this is why I'm saying we have to take a long-range view of the future and learn how to connect the dots uh, so that we don't uh, blunder into extreme catastrophes which we could easily do. We have 500 coal power stations worldwide. They have a lifetime appalling of 60 years. So most people running coal power stations are very reluctant to do anything if they're told to close them down. Uh, amazingly, no coal power station captures its carbon today, although it's possible to do. There's not a single coal power station in the world which does that, and the reason that they don't do it is because doing that would lower their profits. And so this is the, uh, the, the big enemy. The, the main cause of global warming is, uh, is the output of coal power stations. And, and China's building two uh, a week, very big ones, and uh, other parts of the world are building them as well. So vital message uh, is vitally, vitally important. The, the only way you can stop the Chinese or other people building coal power stations is if you find something cheaper. Is there any way of generating clean energy which is cheaper than coal? And that's a totally critical question. And the Chinese are not going to stop building coal power stations unless they can find something cheaper than coal. And when certainly has it been doing? When is it never going to be cheaper than coal or anywhere close to the cost of coal? The best candidate is solar power, enormous amounts of sunshine reaches the earth and the solar um, chips that we've got today, photovoltaic cells that we've got today, are more expensive than coal. Um, there's no end of work going on to try and lower them, but they're all the crystalline chips, they're all silicon, and there's something entirely new, and that is to build uh, photovoltaic uh, cells with organic techniques. And so one of the schools we've got in Oxford is trying to concentrate on that. Its goal is to get organic photovoltaics which are less, where the cost of electricity is less than coal. And that's going to be very difficult to do. It's going to take very elaborate mathematics to design the uh, organic chips which can do that. But this, this is the sort of thing we need to be looking for. It may work, it may not work. I think it will work. But there are other things as well which are sort of low probability. We need to be looking for everything we can to get electricity cheaper than coal. And the other important thing to do is to uh, create buildings, create society so that it uses less electricity, less air conditioning, because buildings are not designed well and so, and so on. So anyway, um, build uh, home. Every home ought to have solar cells. Uh, and solar thermal power is quite different. Solar thermal power means you've got a large array of mirrors which heat up a substance in a, in a tower like that. And uh, the Sahara Desert is absolutely huge. You could have... Uh, solar thermal generators uh, in much of the Sahara Desert. We've already got cables under the ocean which could deliver that electricity to Europe. But um, I don't think we're going to 
uh, achieve our goals of getting uh, a major drop in carbon without nuclear power. And uh, a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction to uh, nuclear power. And in the next, uh, we want to study this by 2050, uh, we probably will need a thousand new uh, nuclear power stations from today. Now, there's uh, incredible emotion about nuclear power, maybe with the lady who just walked out. Somebody always walks out when I mention nuclear power. And uh, now, almost all of the nuclear power stations in existence today were built before uh, 1973. So they were very old technology. And as you imagine, the way in which technology is advancing in nuclear reactors today is incredibly different from what it was 40 years ago. And uh, so when we talk about nuclear power, we're not talking about Three Mile Island, we're not talking about Chernobyl. Chernobyl is utterly ridiculous. Uh, uh, madness, piece of utter madness that should, should never have happened and will never happen again. So today, if you wanted to build nuclear power, power stations fairly quickly, the, the main choice is a, a large water reactor, which is mass-produced, the software is mass-produced, it's got extreme safety controls. There's no power station in existence today which was not hand-built, uh, built out of components especially for that, and that, that's ridiculous. You want uh, a nuclear power station which are mass-produced, where the technology is really well proven, you've got standard software, which has uh, extreme uh, reliability. Incidentally, nobody on the planet has been killed by uh, nuclear power with the exception of Chernobyl. Nobody was killed at uh, three, three Mile Island. Nobody was hurt at Three Mile Island. I was, I was filming in Three Mile Island and we had the PR woman there describing things to us. She said, nobody was hurt in the slightest bit and the caravan tapped me on the shoulder and said, she's got a beard. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, now, with, with coal in the United States, uh, it said that uh, approximately 44,000 people are killed uh, by coal. <coughs> Some are killed in the mines, uh, many are killed by the filth that coal pumps out. The filth that coal power stations pumps out causes blood clots, causes all manner of lung ailments, and so a large number of people die at an earlier age due to coal. So the real enemy is not nuclear power, the real enemy is coal. And coal is putting huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. This is in uh, Vermont, we live in Vermont, and uh, Vermont's a wonderful place. It's a bit like Scotland. Has uh, great mountains, beautiful scenery, and very, very nice people. And this is a bunch of uh, students, other people, who thought they finally succeeded in getting Vermont's nuclear power station closed down. So here they are cheering at the success. And it, it had a very old reactor. The reactor should have been taken out 10 years ago and replaced with a, a modern reactor. You don't need to clear, close down the whole power station, only about 10% of the cost is the reactor. And if you replace the reactor, that's not uh, changing much of the cost of the power station. Uh, anyway, uh, what they are cheering about uh, uh, is probably going to lead to famine. And uh, so you show this, this slide with these people, and they go absolutely hysterical. And uh, many schools and universities do. I recently lectured at one of the most expensive schools in the United States. The expensive schools there cost uh, $50,000 per kid. And uh, they got very upset indeed, because I said more or less the things I've been saying here. And it turned out they got an utterly knee-jerk reaction. You must never mention nuclear power. You must never mention subsidies. You must never mention uh, genetic modification. You must never mention stem cells. And uh, 
this is not only schools, you find it in many different places. Um, stem cells are going to be probably the biggest change in medicine. They're going to enable us to, to grow hearts anywhere in the body. If you have a heart attack, we can rebuild your heart with stem cell technology. We're going to build, build neurons in the brain. Stem cell technology is incredibly, incredibly important medical technology. It's going to be more important than antibiotics. Where antibiotics were um, developed in, in Oxford in the late 1940s, and so I like to say, uh, and incidentally, the, the church opposed antibiotics ferociously at that time. So I like to uh, say to people in the States who are opposing stem cells, would you have uh, opposed antibiotics? Uh, uh, antibiotics have saved enormous numbers of lives. So if you slow down stem cell development, you are causing enormous number of deaths. And you can work out the number of deaths that would uh, happen if stem cells were banned. And it's, you know, ten times the Holocaust. And uh, so anyway... Again, let me skip over some of the new technology. The lot of things we can do to help save the planet. It would save much less, it would cost much less money to save the rainforest than we have spent on saving the bankers. Uh, and yet, uh, everybody talks about saving the bankers, but nobody talks about saving the rainforest. Uh, we're likely to get low carbon societies in, in the world. Uh, we can take carbon out of the atmosphere. This is. Uh, uh, phytoplankton on, on the ocean and you can uh, use fertilizers for making that grow much faster and that absorbs carbon dioxide and then, and then it tends to sink. So there are various ways to take remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We refer to many of these things as climate engineering. Um, enforcement of building codes uh, would mean that the building uh, uses much less CT, much less air conditioning. China's got building codes but very often they're not obeyed. Uh, very well. This is one of those buildings which actually fell down. The entire building fell down. Uh, so n no very good enforcement of the, the building codes. But anyway, a dangerous problem to end is that the most powerful people on the planet don't put this big picture together that I'm describing here. They don't connect the dots. And because of that, they fail to act on it. Uh, as, in, as in Copenhagen, uh, Lord Stern, Nicholas Stern uh, is... Uh, Government department wrote by far the best uh, study of the economics of uh, global warming, the Stern Report. And uh, Lord Stern uh, was saying for six months before Copenhagen, Copenhagen is the single most important conference since World War II. And just look at it, it was an absolute total fiasco. It didn't achieve one single legal agreement. And so this raises a question. We, we've got to understand uh, in the long term uh, what, what, what we're doing, long term understanding what we're doing so we can avoid calamities in the future. And that, that is not happening today, but it really needs to happen. And so, a big question can a democracy make high technology decisions when, when most people don't know anything about technology? In fact, worse than that, in society, you have got uh, the good newspapers going bankrupt in much of the world. Network news is losing viewers at a rapid rate. Network news will almost certainly be taken over by um, uh, things on the internet. Uh, vast numbers of bloggers are preaching false science. There'll be endless numbers of video bloggers. And uh, now most scientists keep quiet. They don't want to get their name in the newspapers. And so your crackpot scientists, your pseudoscientists, uh, uh, generating all sorts of sensation with, with false science, whereas your real scientists are keeping quiet all the time. And can, uh, under those conditions, can a democracy make the right types of decisions? 
Probably we ultimately need a new layer of government which doesn't in any way interfere with the sovereignty. Worldwide doesn't interfere with sovereignty in any way. Doesn't interfere with the British government in any way, for example. And a bit like the House of Lords. The House of Lords, of course, is not elected. Uh, the House of Lords has changed enormously in the last 20 years. They now have 70 scientists in the House of Lords, and what they're trying to do is to get rid of all the hereditary lords and get people who have got a, a very important uh, base of knowledge, whether it's from corporations or from science or from philosophy, in, in the House of Lords. So that's a very different type of government. And you don't find it anywhere else in the world. The British House of Lords is really unique. And if it was done very well, I mean, very important. Uh, and this new uh, government needs uh, knowledge of science, knowledge of computer models, uh, knowledgeable about the future, and uh, highly skilled in the use of media. We must learn how to use media so that we can somehow or other get the right message to the public. We're obviously getting the, the wrong message with Copenhagen, and the failure of Copenhagen has done incredible damage when you look at all the consequences of it. So highly skilled use of media to try and avoid that in, in the future. So we would like the uh, 20th century, this is a very special century, it's the century where we learn to control what we're doing. So future centuries can be magnificent. Thank you.